0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live at our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, Streamwood, or Huntley, or check out a service online. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Uh, well, I grew up in a church-going family, but by the time I was a senior in high school, I was pretty turned off to church. And then I heard about a youth ministry in a neighboring town, about 20 minutes away, uh, where supposedly hundreds of kids were coming. And so I decided I needed to check this out for myself. And I was really impressed by the size of the crowd and the energy in the room and the live worship band. But what struck me the most was the weekly teaching of the youth pastor. I mean, this guy would stand up in front of hundreds of high school students, he would open the Bible, he would read a passage, and then he'd explain it and apply it in such a way that it, you know, just riveted the attention of high school students and it was applicable to our lives. Uh, The next year I went off to college and finally, genuinely surrendered my life to Jesus, Uh, Meanwhile, that youth pastor launched his own church, started his own church, uh, which grew into one of the largest, one of the most influential churches in the country. So fast forward four years. I'm about to graduate from college and get married and I realized I don't have a job. And so I saw an opening for a youth pastor position at a small church out in Boston and I figured, you know, I could do that for a year or two while I figure out what I really want to do with my life. And so I went out there and I called that former youth pastor who was now a mega church pastor and I said, hey, can you fly out to Boston and just coach me on how to get started? And He did. Now, several years later, Sue and I felt the call of God to move back to the Midwest, and we started Christ Community Church, and uh, once again, I went to this dude, and I said, hey, you started a church from scratch. Can you give me some some tips and pointers? And so he met with, with me again, and he coached me. And then over the years, you know, as I've had the opportunity to write several books for publication, uh, this famous mentor endorsed my books and interviewed me on his popular podcast, and... Uh, You know, when we dedicated the 2,000-seat auditorium in the St. Charles campus, uh, this is the guy who came out and spoke at the dedication ceremony. And and he himself was leading a ministry that was growing by leaps and bounds, over 20,000 people coming uh, to his weekend services, an annual leadership conference that was live streamed to viewers all around the world. Uh, but then the day came when he was getting ready to, uh, to retire. But before he could retire with the well wishes of his congregation, a scandal was exposed. Multiple allegations of sexual misconduct. And it made the national news. And then my mentor disappeared from sight. And I was broken hearted. I was brokenhearted. Now, there are two reasons I tell you this story. First, it, it reveals what we long for in a leader. Yes, we want a leader who's extraordinarily gifted and visionary and, and winsome, but we also want a leader who's trustworthy. We want a leader who's a person of integrity. And when they're not, it not only disappoints us, it, it disillusions us. And we're in the third week of a four-part series in the book of Judges, a series called Life Without a King. And that was the problem in ancient Israel, the period that's covered uh, by this book of the Bible. There was no trustworthy leader, no royal role model, no godly king. And so the people lived in a constant state of moral and spiritual chaos. Oh, for a leader... Oh, for a king, oh, oh, for a king worthy of his crown. The story of my mentor points to this longing in every one of our hearts for a trustworthy leader. And this theme, this longing for a trustworthy leader that we're gonna look at in the book of Judges ties our Judges series into the season of the year, Advent, the season that leads up to Christmas because Advent is the time that we long for the coming of Jesus the king of all kings, the leader we, we long for and the leader that we desperately need, whether we realize it or not. Now, the second reason I tell you my mentor's story is to introduce today's theme to you, which is self-control. Self-control. You, you see, it was my mentor's lack of self-control, specifically in the area of sexual conduct, that led to his eventual downfall proverbs twenty five verse twenty eight warns us like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self control, like a city whose walls are are broken in ancient times if if your city walls were were in shambles, you were in trouble. Because without those protective walls, you were prey to enemy armies and roving bandits. And similarly, when our lives lack self-control, all sorts of bad things can happen to us. Like what happened to my mentor friend. Like, Like what happened to Samson, whose story we're considering today in our study of Judges. If you brought a Bible with you, and I hope you did, turn with me to Judges chapter 13. Okay, seven books in from your front cover. Judges 13, and while you're looking for Judges 13, let me ask you a question. In what area of your life are you in need of greater self-control? In what area of your life are you in need of greater self-control? Now, be honest, because you know, we tend to pride ourselves on those areas in which we're really disciplined while ignoring those that are out of control. Uh, for example... You may be super disciplined when it comes to exercise. I mean, you never miss your workout at the gym. However, on the other hand, when it comes to money, maybe money slips through your fingers like water, okay? You you, you don't have a budget. You spend too much on clothes and eating out and, and travel. You give meager amounts to the Lord's work. Our tendency is to be self-controlled in some areas of our lives while out of control in others, which is why we all need today's sermon. Where could you use greater self-control? Maybe it's in the managing of your anger or your impatience. Maybe you need greater self-control with regard to how much you eat or drink. Maybe you need to control better the way you judge others. Maybe it's your preoccupation with your cell phone or social media, or maybe you need to trim back your overly packed schedule. Maybe there are certain temptations which you're just not saying no to. Maybe you're unable to restrain what comes out of your mouth. See, self control is a really big deal. So today we're going to consider four factors, four factors that hugely determine the level of self-control in our lives. And these four factors are illustrated in the life of a horrible role model named Samson. You know, there, there's more written about Samson in the book of Judges than about any other character. And most of it is bad. So here's factor number one. What will contribute to our self-control? Well, it's impacted first by the influence of of the world. If you're jotting down notes, that's point number one, the influence of the world. And if your Bible is open to Judges 13, let me read the opening verses to you. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who, who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now drop down to the second half of verse 5. Your son will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your word. Now, if you've listened to the first two sermons in this Life Without a King series and and you've been following Christ Community Church's daily Bible reading schedule called Bible Savvy as it takes us through the book of Judges, you probably noted a repeating pattern in these opening verses. Okay, there is a downward spiritual moral spiral that keeps popping up in the book. This is the seventh time that we're encountering this cycle. Now, do you remember the five stages of the cycle? Let me quickly review them for you. Stage number one, disobedience. God's people wander away from him into patterns, habits of sin, uh, into worshiping other gods, having other priorities other than the one true living God, which leads to stage number two, oppression. You know, God steps back. He says, okay, you want to be on your own? And so he removes his protective hand. Enemy armies sweep in and oppress the people. Stage three, the people realize this isn't what we want. And they cry out to God. They pray. They say, God, we screwed up. Forgive us. Rescue us. Stage four, God sends a deliverer. Stage five, the deliverer kicks enemy butt introduces a period of peace and tranquility but unfortunately that peace leads to spiritual apathy and the whole nasty cycle gets repeated but there's something different about the cycle this time around now the cycle begins in in the same way if you look at the the verses i just read to you stage one disobedience you see it right there they did evil in the eyes of the lord stage two enemy oppression you know, this time it's at the hand, hands of the Philistines. But I, but I want to stop right there for a moment. I want to give you a little bit of historical context about the oppressors, about the Philistines. Okay, the Philistines were a group of people who had migrated in about 1200 BC. They, they, they had migrated from islands in the Aegean Sea south and east toward Egypt. When they got to Egypt, the Egyptians repulsed them, fought them off. And so the Philistines continued up the coast, the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and parked in the western plains of Israel. That's where they launched five cities. Uh, Interestingly, what's really important here is that they didn't oppress God's people by military conquest, at least not initially, but by assimilation. Now, what do I mean by that? They oppressed God's people by assimilation. Well, God's people started hanging out with the Philistines. They started adopting Philistine behaviors. Worshiping Philistine gods, intermarrying with Philistine people. So Philistineism just subtly took over. We're going to see that in the life of Samson in a little bit. Samson had this thing for Philistine women. So it wasn't just a sexual temptation for, for Samson. It was a compromising of his devotion to the one true God. So God's people at this time, they were looking and acting like the Philistines, like the world around them. This was why, if you go back to the opening verses of chapter 13, something was missing in that downward cycle this time around. Did you notice the missing stage? Okay, stage one, disobedience. It was there. Stage two, oppression. Yeah, they were given into the culture of the Philistines. But then it jumps to stage four. Okay, God provides a deliverer, verses two and three. God goes to this uh, couple that's been barren and he says, you're gonna have a son. The son turns out to be Samson, a great deliverer. But what happened to stage three? We skipped it. What happens to the, they get on their knees and cry out to God, we're so sorry, please rescue us. Didn't happen this time around. Why not? Because they didn't realize they needed a rescue. See, they had so adopted the customs, the behaviors, the values, the priorities of the world around them. They were cool with that. And so God in his grace, God in his mercy sent them a deliverer, even though they didn't recognize that they needed a deliverer. You get it? Yeah. Is, there, is there a lesson? Is there an application there for us? Okay, is it possible as a, as a Christ follower living in the world that you, you become so acclimated to the values, the priorities, the standards, moral standards of the world that you don't recognize the degree to which it's influenced you? Yeah, so, someone has said if you're a Christ follower, Christ followers are like boats. I love this analogy. Okay, a boat needs to be in the water, but if the water gets into the boat, <laughs> the boat sinks. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't, you can't avoid being in the world. But if the, world, if the world's values and behaviors and priorities get into you, the boat's going to sink. And in no amount of self-control on your part <laughs> is going to be able to withstand the overwhelming influence of the world unless you do something about it. Let, let, let me give you a couple of examples what I'm talking about here. Uh, let's say that you want to exercise self-control in response to sexual temptation. Well, great, but what does the world? What does the world have to say about that? Well, your your friends are sleeping with people they're dating. You know, porn is just a click away on your computer pride marches pride flags celebrate same sex attractions every every romance, romantic comedy you watch on tv or at the movies has couples jumping into bed you know sue and i decided to watch one of these hallmarky christmas movies the other night don't don't go there oh, yeah, I think, I think it had like a G or a PG rating because it's so wholesome as this couple falls in love and heads to the bedroom. Well, Christmas music, joy to the world, the Lord is come, is playing in the background. You know, flirtations are going on in your workplace. Your, your health teacher is showing you how to have safe sex. Hey, friends, we live in a sex-crazed culture. Self-control? really? Self-control, unless we pause and identify the ways in which the world is influencing us sexually and then take practical steps to eliminate or limit those influences, our self-control doesn't stand a chance. We gotta stop letting the water get into the boat. Here's another example of what I'm talking about. If you're a genuine Christ follower, you wanna be generous, now, I know that about you because you're following Jesus, the most generous person of all time, who gave his life for you. So when you hear of an opportunity to give, there's something inside that moves you. You want to do something about it, like our, our year-end gift campaign, this Homes for the Holiday. You hear about the opportunity to rescue Afghani refugees who are fleeing for their lives you hear about children who need sponsorships just to be able to eat and have an education and a roof over their heads. You hear about the pastor's families that we work alongside of in Sierra Leone and Bangladesh and because of hyperinflation and whatnot. They can't even put food on their table right now and something inside of you moves. And so people give. They give $50 and $100 and 500 and 1000 and some give $10,000 and more. But here's... The problem the world doesn't want you to be generous you know unless we're talking about being generous with yourself generous with your family now the world is running christmas campaign ads right now for all the stuff you need to buy in order to be happy The world is encouraging you to take expensive getaways. The world is saying, spend, spend, spend. So being generous is gonna require self-control while at the same time, this area of money management, the world is doing everything in its power to undermine your financial discipline. So are you gonna let the world get away with that? You see how the influence of the world assaults our self control and I want you to recall for a moment, earlier in the sermon, I said, hey, call to mind an area in your life where you could use greater self-control. Bring that area back to mind right now, because I want to ask two questions about it. Okay, you got it locked in? How is the world influencing you in that particular area? Because I guarantee it is. And you either know it and recognize it, or you're just naive to it. You're missing it. And the second question is, if you want greater self-control in that area, what are you going to do to limit the influence of the world in that regard? Here's a second huge factor when it comes to the level of self-control in our lives. It's the pull of the flesh. Back to the story of Samson, the book of Judges. Uh, We read about his promised birth in chapter 13. Let's fast forward to a time when Samson was now a young man living at home with his mom and dad. Chapter 14, first verse, Samson went down to Timnah and he saw there a young Philistine woman and when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. Don't you love that? That's nuanced, isn't it? Get her for me. Samson sees a good-looking woman, and he wants her. Now, keep in mind, he hasn't even met her. Okay, He hasn't seen her profile on the dating website. He hasn't taken her out for shawarma for a get-acquainted conversation. None of that. This is nothing but lust at first sight. This is the pull of Samson's flesh. Now, flesh is a biblical word that refers to our sinful nature, our sinful impulses. There are two contradictory viewpoints on human nature. One side says people by nature are basically good. Other side says people by nature are basically bad. What does God say? Well, God's word falls in the second camp. Okay, Jeremiah, the prophet, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. King David says of himself in Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, verse 23, All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Now, I don't even need the Bible to convince me of this truth that people by nature are basically bad because I'm a parent. I raised three little sinners. Right, And so you know, as I, was, as I was raising my kids, I constantly had to teach them how to be good. I never had to teach them how to be bad. They did bad naturally. And we all do. We all do. The pull of the flesh, it wreaks havoc on our self-control. Let me tell you, our flesh shreds self-control. Now, for Samson, the flesh manifest, manifested itself in two obvious ways. The first we've already seen, it was sexual lust. He saw a woman and he said to his parents, get her for me. Now that's in chapter uh, 13, chapter 14 rather. But flip ahead two chapters to chapter 16, opening verse of chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute, went in to spend the night with her. And drop down to verse 4, we see it again. Sometime later it says, he fell in love, more accurately, in lust, with a woman in the valley of Sorak whose name was Delilah. You see a pattern here? See, Samson's flesh is constantly pulling him in the direction of lust. A second way in which his flesh manifested itself was, was anger. Let me take you back to that incident in chapter 14 where he sees a woman and he wants her and he says to mom and dad, get her for me. Well, Samson eventually decides to marry her. And so the bride's family says, okay, well, you know, the the wedding is your party and we're giving you 30 groomsmen to work with. How'd you like that for your wedding party? You know, when I read that this week, all I could think of my my son is a wedding photographer. How do you get that many people in one picture? So not only are these guys given to Samson as his groomsmen, it's his job to provide them with outfits, with the tuxes, so to speak, okay? This is very expensive. So Samson comes up with a way to save money. He says to his bride's family and friends, he says, listen, I got a riddle for you guys. If you guess the riddle, I pay for the outfits of the groomsmen. If you don't guess the riddle, you pay for the outfits. You game? And they said, sure, we'll play the game. So then they went to the bride-to-be and they put pressure on her. And they said, you got to find out the answer to the riddle, which she did. And so they won. And Samson was stuck paying for these 30 outfits. So you know what he did? He went to the nearest Philistine city. He killed 30 Philistines. He stripped them of their fine clothes and gave the clothes to his groomsmen. So you say, well, that's the end of that story, right? Are you kidding me? How many of you know that anger and vengeance have a way of escalating? So the bride's family retaliates by taking away Samson's new wife and giving them to some bozo. So now it's Samson's turn. So he goes out into their wheat fields and he lights their wheat fields, sets their their wheat fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards, sets them ablaze, burns them out. And so they come back and they burn the new wife and her dad burn them to death. Samson says in chapter 15, verse 7, he says, okay, now you've gone too far. I am going to get revenge. And he picks up the nearest weapon, which happens to be the jawbone of a donkey that had been discarded. And he slays a thousand Philistines. Can we just say this is flesh out of control? See, when Samson's flesh kicked into high gear, whether it was lust or anger, there was no stopping it. But isn't that true for every one of us? I mean, it's hard to put a stop to our flesh once it gets going. It's like a toboggan coming down an icy hill. So, what does the Bible say is the solution? How do we neutralize the pull of the flesh so that our self control, our self control, has a fighting chance? The Bible says, you ready for this? The Bible says, kill it. What are you supposed to do with the flesh? Put it to death. The Apostle Paul explains it this way in Galatians 5 verse 24. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What's Paul saying? He's saying when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we become so united with Christ. That his death on the cross for us, it destroys, it puts to death the power of the flesh in our lives. Let me say that again. When you surrender to Christ, you ever done that? When you surrender to Christ, your life becomes so united with his that his death on the cross destroys the power the power that the flesh once had in your life so that you can now say no to things that once enslaved you. In the words of the old hymn that we like to sing around Christ Community Church, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. People who surrender their lives to Jesus no longer have to do everything their flesh urges them to do. They now have the freedom to exercise self-control. Factor number three. Okay, what are the factors that impacted Samson's self-control and ours? Number three, the shortage of accountability. Go back with me to Judges 14, the part of the story where Samson sees a beautiful woman, says to mom and dad, get her for me. How do his parents respond to that? Look at verse three. It says, his father and mother replied, 'Uh, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. He really likes that line. Get her for me. She's the right one for me. So what did Samson's parents do? Did did they say, okay, now's the time to practice some tough love. Listen, Junior, you're you're out of the house if you want to continue on this path. Or did they take away the keys to the family chariot? You know, what what did they do? They folded. You know, read the story for yourself. They became classic enablers. They did exactly what Samson demanded them to do. See, there's a shortage of accountability in our culture today, friends, and it's seriously undermining the development of our self-control. Now, there are two sides to this shortage. first side is... We don't receive accountability very well. We don't receive it. We don't welcome people's feedback, especially if it's the least bit critical or, or negative. We, we don't ask for the wise advice of friends or, or parents. Hey, counsel me on this. We, we don't enlist the help of an accountability partner, someone that we, we meet with regularly and we share our struggles with and we say, help me out, get in my face. See, We're on our own and we prefer it that way. Here's an interesting insight about Samson. Of all the deliverers that God provides for his people in the book of Judges, Samson is the only one who always acts alone. Okay, Samson is gonna do what Samson wants to do. Nobody's gonna tell him otherwise. I opened today's sermon with a story about a mentor of mine whose lack of self-control train wrecked his life. I don't want that to happen to me. And so I've put accountability in place in in numerous ways. I got a, a wife who speaks truth to me, even though I don't always want to hear it. I've got an accountability partner who I meet with every other week, and we're really open about anything we're struggling with, any temptations we're facing. Uh, There are protocols here at the church that I submit to that keep me out of tempting situations. Uh, I, I experience shared leadership when making decisions. I don't make unilateral decisions on my own. Even my weekly sermons. The sermon that you're hearing right now was reviewed by a team, I've got a rotating team of elders and staff who review every single sermon before I preach it. So what about you? You know, who has permission to get in your face? How, how well do you receive accountability from a trusted friend, from your spouse, from your parents, from your boss, from your pastor? Now, the flip side of this is how well do you offer accountability? Okay, Samson's parents wimped out. They they were godly people. I mean, when the angel of the Lord announced to them that they were going to have a son, mom and dad replied, this is Judges 13 verse 8, hey, tell us how to bring up the boy who's to be born. See, they wanted to be good parents, and when Samson demanded that they get this good-looking woman for him, their first response was to push back on his ultimatum. Isn't there somebody from, you know, from our team that you could fall in love with? Do you really have to go to a Philistine to find yourself a wife? But when Samson pushed back, they, they immediately caved in. So here's the lie that our culture is feeding us today, friends. Our culture is telling us in order to love people, you need to approve of all of their choices and behaviors. You familiar with that one? You know, the only way to show love to people is, is to say yes, to celebrate all of their choices, all of their behaviors. Really? So if my friend is drinking too much, I should just keep my mouth shut? If my daughter tells me that she's gonna transition to become a, a, a boy, I should say nothing about what the Bible has to say about where our true identity comes from, that God created us male and female. You know, that if, if there's a coworker, if there's a schoolmate who's far from God and I've got this Jesus faith, I should keep the Jesus faith to myself. Don't foist it on anybody else. And that's love. Love. Now, I'm not suggesting that we, we should obnoxiously voice our opinions about everything under the sun. Please don't. And some of us, by nature, that's what we do, and we need to restrain ourselves. But, but maybe, maybe Samson's self-control would have been strengthened. Maybe his self-destruction could have been averted if someone had cared enough about him, if someone had loved him enough to offer some accountability. Is there somebody who could use that from you? Accountability, lovingly offered. Here's the fourth factor, and, and this is the most important one, save the best to last, that impacts our self-control. It's the spirit. Or in Samson's life, it was the absence of the Spirit. Now, if you read through the story of Samson this past week, if you've been following the Bible-savvy reading schedule, and I hope you'll get a copy of the schedule and maybe a good New Year's habit for you to develop, reading God's Word each day. If you did that through the Samson story, you probably noted this past week the repeated references to the power of God's Spirit in Samson's life. You've heard me say dozens of times, look for repeating words or ideas as you read through scripture. So chapter 13, verse 25 says, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Chapter 14, verse six, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And then that same phrase, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully uh, upon him is repeated in 14, verse 19. In chapter 15, verse 14. But but then Samson got tangled up with a Philistine woman named Delilah. And we don't have time to go into the details of the story, but let me quickly recap it for you. So Delilah was bribed by Samson's Philistine enemies to find the source of his strength. She was given a lot of money. And so she went to work on Samson, nagging him relentlessly until he finally told her, he said, okay, you want to know where my superpower comes from? I don't cut my hair. Now, please understand, the power did not come from the length of Samson's hair. If that's where spiritual power comes from, I am in trouble, all right? (laughs) The power came from what the long hair symbolized. See, Samson had made a vow to God years earlier called a Nazarite vow that he would not cut his hair as a symbol of the fact that he was dedicated to God. He was committed to God. But now, this affair with Delilah was proving that Samson was more interested in pleasing Delilah than he was in pleasing God. So, when he gave her this information, she put him to sleep and she tied him up and she cut off his hair. And then she called out, chapter 16, verse 20. I think this is one of the most tragic verses in the entire Bible. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and he thought, well, I'll go out as before, shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, quick theology lesson here. Okay, in Old Testament times, God's spirit would come and go in people's lives. It was not a constant Okay, and the the Spirit of God would typically come on people when God wanted to empower them for some special task, like in Samson's life, the defeating of the Philistines. But in this case now, because of Samson's behavior, the Spirit had left him. Okay, when you get to the New Testament, all of that changes because of Jesus. So Jesus dies on the cross to take the hit, to take the penalty for our sins. He's raised from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of God. But he says before he returns to heaven, he says to his followers, when I get to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit of God who's going to come and indwell those who've surrendered their lives to me. So when you surrender your life to Christ, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, comes to live on the inside. And one of the fruits, one of the character traits that he produces in your life, according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5, verse 23, is self-control. It's not so much self-control as it's Holy Spirit-empowered control. So how does that happen? Well, Paul says in that same chapter of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he said, well, you need to learn to walk by the Spirit, and if you do, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. How do you walk by the Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is your internal life coach, friend, if you've surrendered to Christ. And his coaching manual is this book. So you're going to be walking by the Spirit to the extent that you pay attention on a daily basis to God's Word. And the Holy Spirit's team, if he's your life coach, his team is the gathered church. That's why I say again to those of you who are watching online, I'm so glad we've got a live stream. So when you can't possibly make it, you get to see our service anyway. But the gathered church is where it happens, where we're energized, where we're filled with God's Spirit as we we rub elbows with brothers and sisters in Christ. And the mission of the Spirit, the way we win the game is to serve Jesus and find ways to share Jesus with our friends. So if you want to learn to walk by the Spirit, then you you pay attention to the Spirit's coaching manual, and you play on the Spirit's team, and and you work at the Spirit's mission. And as He takes over more and more of your life, He produces within you self-control along with a bunch of other fruits that Paul lists in Galatians 5.23, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Wow. Could you use some of that? Would you pray with me? As we bow our heads before God, we want to surrender our lives to Christ right now. If you've never done this before, do it for the first time. If you've done it before, but maybe you've wandered and you're not walking by the spirit, this is a good time to surrender afresh. Remember how the sermon opened. We all long for, we all desperately need a king. King Jesus will not become your king until you surrender your life to him. He is willing to take over the leadership of your life, to be your savior, forgiving your sins, giving you new life but he doesn't become a savior unless he can also be your king. So you gotta get up off the throne of your life right now, quit being your own king, your own queen, and say, Jesus, I wanna learn what it means to follow you. I want you to be the savior and Lord of my life. Can you tell him that right now in the quietness of your heart? I want you to be my savior and my king, or I've wandered from you, and I need to come back to you being king in my life. I need to learn what it means to walk by the spirit. Let me give you a quiet moment to pray that prayer. God, please hear the cry of our hearts. Send us the Deliverer, Jesus, the Savior and King. Fill us with your spirit. Teach us what it means to walk according to the spirit so we won't gratify the desires of the flesh and so our lives will be marked by Christ-like character. We pray in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen.